female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. I was just on TikTok and there's a there's a creator on TikTok like who does a lot of videos. Uh, she has like a big snake. I don't know what, what kind of snake it is. It's like a big python. It could even be like an anaconda or something like that. But it's bright yellow, so it's probably some sort of banana python or something weird like that. And it's very sad that the python died. Uh, apparently it died overnight. And the, the video was just this woman sitting on the ground with the python just in, like <laughs> coiled up in her lap. And she's just wailing. She's crying and crying and crying. And it's obviously very sad. Like it's sad that her pet died or whatever. And she's obviously very upset but what's weird like she had to set the camera up first right she lives by herself she had to set <laughs> she had to she had to go downstairs see the dead snake set up a tripod set up the camera start recording and then <laughs> and then pull the snake out onto her lap and start crying uh the internet's a funny thing people will do anything for fame Speaking of which, let's get into my white boy podcast. Welcome back to Man It Is The Only True Crime Podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals, whether it's scratchings, maulings, ball, maulings, clawings, or whatever the last thing is, we're here to talk about it. Fucked up the intro. It's only been 53 episodes. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to a very special episode, an episode I've been thinking about for like six months. I've been really excited for this one. Uh, it... it I'm going to, as far as to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, this is a very special episode. We're very, we're going very true crimey today. You know, I this is technically a true crime podcast. If you search the true crime tabs on Spotify or whatever, you'll find my show. Uh, it is technically a true crime podcast, but you know, it doesn't, there's a lot of, you know, podcasts that are more true crimey. And uh, I thought today I was going to try to compete with that. So today we're bending the rules a little bit. This still relates to, you know, animal-human conflict, but we're kind of going the opposite way. We're talking about serial killers, human serial killers, who had pets and who they loved. Uh, so, a little bit of background, you know, like, serial killers are, it's, it's kind of, well, I'll get into this in the main story, but basically, you know, cruelty to animals is kind of like, uh, not a prerequisite to being a serial killer, but it is one of those factors that they look at in childhood and you go like, oh, shit, yeah, like, that's... Most serial killers do that, or a lot of serial killers do that, and it's, it's, that's that's basically you know one of the red flags that they look out for, along with like head injuries and burning stuff and pissing their pants and I don't know jerking off in public places. So today we're looking at a few serial killers uh, and and talking about their animals that they loved uh, and kind of looking at that juxtaposition on how they they valued the life of their pets, but they clearly didn't value the life of the human beings around them. And we're going to get into that story very soon. Um, but first, we're going to talk about the. B -b 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 Beef of the week. Moo. What's grieving me? What's pissing me off? Uh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Uh, I am not a fan of hail. It's just angry snow. Uh, we just had a hail, snow, st hail storm where I am. And uh, yeah, it came pissing down, scared the crap out of our cat. Like, I don't know where the cat is. I haven't seen the cat in a few hours. It, it, could, be, it could be hiding in the roof somehow. I, I don't know. So yeah, hail, not a big fan. It's exciting, but it does property damage. And we at this podcast have a strong stance against property damage, unless you are a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> no, never mind. Uh, that, I don't even know if that joke makes sense. 
basically I'm saying it's okay to commit crimes against Supreme Court justices, uh, which is probably not a ideal thing to to say on a podcast if you have political aspirations or if you just have any aspirations that involve working in society what are we talking about oh speaking of not working in society let's jump into it today we are talking about bleep mr mugs and a whole other host of animals that were loved by serial killers let's just jump into it So, animal cruelty, particularly when it involves torturing or killing animals, is considered to be a red flag for potential violent behaviour in the future. Many notorious serial killers such as Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and David Berkowitz, aka the Son of Sam, had a history of animal abuse before they escalated to committing violent acts against humans. Psychologists and researchers have studied the connection between animal cruelty and later violent behaviour. They've found that animal abuse can serve as a precursor to acts of violence against humans. This pattern is often seen in individuals who display signs of psychopathy or conduct or conduct disorder, characterized by a lack of empathy, disregard for others' feelings and rights, and a tendency to engage in aggressive or antisocial behavior. Now, there are several theories that attempt to explain the link between animal cruelty and future violent acts. One perspective suggests that animal cruelty provides an outlet for individuals to exert power and control over, over a vulnerable being, allowing them to satisfy their sadistic tendencies or get revenge on others in society who have treated them the wrong way. By inflicting harm on animals, they experience a sense of domination and derive a pleasure from causing the suffering. Another theory emphasizes the desensitization effect of animal cruelty. Engaging in acts of violence against animals can reduce inhibitions and diminish empathy towards living creatures. This desensitization may progressively extend to humans, making it easier for individuals to inflict harm on people without remorse or guilt. It's important to note that, you know, cruelty to humans, committing violent acts to animals or humans is not a normal thing. In Nazi Germany, the majority of Nazi soldiers, they had to be fucking drunk or high to do a lot of the terrible things that they did. It is not part of human nature to act this way. So building up to it <clears throat> by committing acts of animal abuse is one way that they, might de they may desensitize themselves. Now, it is also important to note that not all individuals who engage in animal cruelty will become serial killers or violent criminals. Many factors contribute to the development of violent behavior including genetic predispositions, childhood trauma, environmental influences, and mental health issues. Animal cruelty is just one potential warning sign amongst others that may indicate an individual's potential for escalating violence further. Efforts have been made to recognize the significance of animal cruelty in identifying individuals who may pose a risk to society. Animal welfare organizations, law enforcement agencies, and mental health professionals increasingly collaborate to address cases of animal abuse and provide intervention and support to individuals who are at risk. Now, interestingly, while many serial killers have a history of animal abuse and torture, some murderers are actually animal lovers, and not in the creepy sexual way. Oh, maybe in some ways, but not today. Today, we're looking at a few individuals who, while they reveled in taking human life, cats and dogs, they actually loved. We're talking about serial killers and the pets who loved them. 
So our first serial killer that we're going to talk about today is Dennis Nielsen, also known as the Muswell Hill Murderer and the Kindly Killer. He was a British serial killer who operated in London during the late 1970s and early 1980s. His early life was marred by a troubled childhood. He grew up in Fraserburgh, a coastal town in Scotland, and had a difficult relationship with his father, Olaf, who was an abusive alcoholic native to Norway. So what happened was uh, during <clears throat> a war, um, a lot of Norwegians came over to this little town called Fraserburgh, and Fraserburgh was like one of those very small, I don't know what you call it, like, I'm going to just, for lack of a better term, call it an incest town. It had like 40 guys living there, not a lot of people, so everyone just slept with each other. So when you had these, all these Norwegian hot sexy guys walking in, be like, oh yeah, you are, could you give me a muscle massage? I'm very sore from fighting Hitler. Um, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> there were a lot of fucking blonde haired babies born, and Nielsen was one of them. Nielsen described his father as a strict disciplinarian who would physically punish him. Nielsen! Dennis, pick up your... No, that's that's not a Scottish... Uh, Norwegian. Uh, Dennis, pick up your Lego blocks. There are... I, I step on a Lego block. Ah, uh, bad. These experiences had a lasting impact on Nielsen's psyche and contributed to his feelings of isolation and detachment. In 1961, Nielsen joined the British Army and served as a cook in the Royal Army Catering Corps. He was stationed in various locations, including Germany and Yemen. During his military service, Nielsen began to explore his homosexuality, although he struggled with accepting his own sexual orientation due to societal attitudes at the time. He is not the only serial killer that uh, suffered from that, by the way. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is another one I can think of off the top of my head. After leaving the army in 1972, Nielsen moved to London and started working for various jobs, including as a police officer for a very brief period. It was during this time that he began his series of murders, which would span from 1978 to 1983. Now, Nielsen's crimes were centred around his home at 23 Cranley Gardens in the Muswell, area, Muswell Hill area of London. Nielsen's victims were primarily young men who he met in bars, pubs, or on the street. He targeted those who were vulnerable, often struggling with homelessness or substance abuse issues. Nielsen would invite these men into his home where he would ply them with alcohol before strangling them to death. He then retained the bodies for an extended period, engaging in acts of necrophilia and conducting experiments in order to pre preserve them. Now, rather than disposing of the bodies, Nielsen opted to keep them in his house for extended periods of time. He placed the corpses under floorboards or stored them in cupboards, meticulously caring for them and engaging in conversations with them. When decomposition became too advanced, he would either dismember the bodies and dispose of the remains by burning them in a bonfire or by boiling them and flushing them down the toilet. All of this happened while Nielsen was living with Bleep, a crossbreed collie that Nielsen had co-owned with an ex-partner. Bleep was a beautiful little dog. He's very cute. Nielsen did unspeakable things to the young men and boys and to their corpses after he'd killed them, but Bleep was always kept in excellent health. He was walked daily, fed well, and loved. On one terrible occasion, Bleep uh, revived a young man that Nielsen had strangled to quote-unquote death. Bleep was licking the man's face, and Bleep accidentally roused him. Nielsen went on to pretend that the guy had just passed out after strangling himself on the zip of his sleeping bag. It's not a stretch to say that Bleep saved the 21-year-old's life, but things were not going to end so well for the innocent little border collie. Now, one thing that you might be thinking, this guy killed, body, killed people, left their bodies in his house to rot. Did Bleep, did, did Dennis ever think of feeding 
the bodies to his dog as one way of disposing of the bodies? Now, the answer is no, thankfully. But it's not out of any kind of squeamishness on, you know, fucking with a human body. As you might have guessed by the whole boiling and shoving him in the toilet thing, he didn't really give a fuck about the bodies. Uh, Nielsen later said that he never fled, uh, fed Bleep the meat because he was concerned that feeding the dog the rotting flesh of a human being could make Bleep sick. Uh, which is like, it's such a weird mentality, but you know, it's, I guess that's at least one good thing that he that he thought of. Um, Nielsen's crimes were discovered in 1983 when a drain outside his house became blocked due to human remains. A plumber was called to fix the issue and discovered gruesome evidence and alerted the police. The story of how this guy got caught is so goddamn funny, by the way. So for years, uh, look, it's, I'll go back and tell a little bit more. <clears throat> Originally, Nielsen had a, a, a house, basically, with a back courtyard where he could just burn the bodies. He was very brazen about it. He would just start big bonfires and throw a body on, and he would just, like, throw tires on to, to sort of disguise the smell. And he would do that all day, and people were just like, oh, yeah, that weird Scottish guy is just, like, having a bonfire again. No one really, you know, discovered it. He got evicted from that place, and so he had to move to this apartment uh, in Muswell Hills, uh, and he did not have access to a garden anymore. So what he sort of came to, to do was he would store the bodies, and then he would chop them up, uh, he would boil the flesh off the bones, and he would flush all, all of the, uh, the rotting human remains down the toilet. Now, what happened was eventually he did it so much that the, that the toilet started to get clogged uh, and people in the apartment building started getting really pissed off and he was like, oh shit, oh fuck, I'm, I'm in trouble here. Uh, you know, a, a, <laughs> a plumber came to like look at the issue outside and hadn't discovered anything yet. Nielsen knew it was only a matter of time until he, you know, was discovered. So what he, <laughs> what he did was he got, a, he got a bunch of KFC, like a bucket of chicken and he went outside. <laughs> <laughs> at nighttime and he opened like the manhole cover and he was just throwing chicken like KFC down there so that if any like human bones or flesh were discovered uh he could just say oh yeah no it's just it's KFC I was flushing KFC down my toilet which is so goddamn funny but he got caught someone in the apartment building saw this fucking dickhead flushing like throwing KFC in a hole in a manhole and the next day when the when the um <laughs> when the plumber came through and found a fucking chicken wing, um, <laughs> the neighbor was like, yeah, I saw that Dennis Nielsen guy throwing chicken in the sink. So the police came up and were like, why were you doing that? And he was like, oh yeah, I was just pissing. I just took a piss in the manhole. So obviously, um, yeah, there was a subsequent investigation and uh, the remains of several victims were found in the pipes and also in his home. Uh, following Nielsen's arrest, he was hugely vocal about the care that his dog needed. Tragically, for whatever reason, Bleep was put down within a few days of her serial killer master being captured. In 1983, Nielsen stood trial for six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. He confessed to the killings, providing chilling details about the motives and methods. Nielsen expressed a desire for companionship and an unwillingness to let his victims leave once they were inside his home. He claimed to have lost count of the exact number of victims, but estimates say that he'd killed about 15 to 16 young men. Nielsen was found guilty on all charges and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Initially, he was incarcerated at HMP Wormwood Scrubs, which is such a British name for a prison, before being transferred to HMP Full Sutton in 2001. Throughout his time in prison, Nielsen remained highly a highly controversial figure, often making headlines with his various appeals and statements. Now, here's another bit of pet trivia for you. During his incarceration, Nielsen was allowed to keep two budgerigars, which he named Hamish and Tweedles, 
which is very cute when you don't think about what this creep did. On May 12, 1918, Dennis Nielsen died at the age of 72 in custody at HMP Full Sutton. The cause of death was reported to be complications related to a pulmonary embolism and a retrophenontial hemorrhage. Nielsen's crimes shocked the public and left a lasting impact on the collective consciousness of the United Kingdom. His case shed light on the vulnerability of homeless individuals and led to an increased awareness for the need of support and resources for this marginalized group. Nielsen's actions and the graphic details surrounding his crimes have made him one of the most notorious and reviled serial killers in British criminal history. Now, if you want to know more about Dennis Nielsen, there was, I think, a TV movie or TV show made, and David Tennant plays him. And it's actually funny, when you Google Dennis Nielsen, uh, he doesn't come up. A photo of, uh, of, of David Tennant comes up, which is hilarious. He does look like him, but it's not him. So another serial killer that uh, left a massive uh, impact on the world was Myra Hindley and her associate Ian Brady. Myra Hindley's early life provides some insight into her background and upbringing. She was born and raised in Gorton, Manchester, during a time of post-World War II social and economic transformation in the United Kingdom. Hindley grew up in a working-class family and her childhood was marked by a turbulent and challenging environment. Her, grandparents, her parents divorced when she was young, and she lived with her mother and grandmother. Hindley's life was characterized by a troubled disposition. She was described as a difficult child, often engaging in attention-seeking behaviors and exhibiting a rebellious nature. She struggled academically and dropped out of school at the age of 15, later working as a clerk and typist. In 1961, at the age of 18, Hindley met Ian Brady at her workplace. Brady, who was five years older than her, was already displaying a deep interest in criminal activity, activities including burglary and armed robbery. The couple quickly formed a relationship based on their dark fantasies and disturbing inclinations towards sadism and violence. Their crimes began in July 1963 when Hindley assisted Brady in the abduction and murder of a 16-year-old girl named Pauline Reed. Over the next two years, they continued their reign of terror, targeting vulnerable children and adolescents. The victims were enticed, sexually assaulted, and eventually murdered, with Hindley often luring the victims to their deaths. The remains of such victims were later discovered at, on Saddleworth Moor, while others, such as Keith Bennett, have never been found despite extensive searches. The revelations surrounding the Moore murders shocked and horrified the nation. Hindley's involvement in the crimes came under intense scrutiny during the subsequent investigation and trial. Initially, she attempted to distance herself from Brady's actions, claiming coercion and manipulation. However, as new evidence emerged, it became evident that she had actively participated in the crimes and played a significant role in their planning and execution. In May 1966, Hindley and Brady stood trial at Chester... I can't even read this word. As sizes. The trial received widespread media coverage and captivated the public's attention. Both were found guilty of multiple counts of murder, and Hindley was also convicted of being an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans. The judge handed down life sentences, emphasizing the grave nature of their crimes and the need for them to be kept in custody for the rest of their lives. During her imprisonment, Hindley made several attempts to secure her release. She claimed to have experienced a transformation, embracing Catholicism and expressing remorse for her actions. However, her appeals for parole were constantly denied as public sentiment and the, and the families of the victims vehemently opposed her release. Hindley's crimes were considered amongst the most heinous in British criminal history, and her attempts at redemption were met with skepticism and resistance. 
Hindley's death in 2002 marked the end of a deeply troubling chapter in British crime. Her crimes, along with Brady's, continue to generate significant public interest and serve as a stark reminder for the capacity of human evil within human beings. The Moore murders case has become a lasting impact on British society, influencing changes in law enforcement practices, child protection policies, and public perceptions of crime and punishment. The victims' families continue to cope with the devastating loss and the enduring legacy of the crimes committed by Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Because during the investigation they refused to cooperate with police, their dog Puppet ended up being one of their final victims. It was uh, killed during the investigation. Disgust disgustingly, Hindley and Brady took photographs on top of the graves of children. Many of these featured Puppet. Police needed to determine the dates of the photographs, and they believed that this could be done by ascertaining an accurate age of the dog. Puppet was x-rayed and unfortunately died during the procedure. It took decades to find some of the missing children, and one remains uh, and one remains discover <laughs> sorry, and one remains undiscovered to this day. When she found out that her dog had died, Hindley reportedly said, I feel as though my heart has been torn to pieces. No such remorse was ever shown for the children whose lives she took. Now we're going to talk about another famous historical figure right now, uh, probably one of the most famous historical figures, and your question may be, is this person technically a serial killer? We're talking about Adolf Hitler, who really doesn't need much of an introduction. Was he a serial killer? Did he kill anyone personally? I don't know, but he is responsible for the deaths of millions of people. I think he qualifies for this piece of shit list that we're doing here. So you all know about Adolf Hitler. He was the biggest dickhead in history, uh, and he, yeah, to just, you know, biggest understatement of the year, he did some bad stuff. He killed a couple guys. He killed some Jews. Too many Jews, if you ask me. Uh, but we're not talking about Hitler. We're talking about his dog. Hitler had a dog. His name was Blondie. He was a German shepherd, of course. Blondie was given to Hitler as a puppy in 1941 by Martin Bormann, one of Hitler's close associates and members of his inner circle. Hitler became quite attached to Blondie and considered him a loyal companion. Blondie often accompanied Hitler to the Wolf's Lair, Hitler's military headquarters in East Prussia, and other locations. Hitler was known to have a fondness for dogs and treated Blondie as a pet rather than a working dog. He would play with Blondie, taking him for walks, and even allowed him to sleep in his bed. Blondie gained a level of prominence due to his association with Hitler. He was frequently photographed with the Nazi leader, and the images were used for propaganda purposes to, hu uh, to humanize Hitler's public image. Now, tragically for Blondie, not for Hitler, uh, his life came to an end. In April 1945, as the Allies were advancing on Berlin, Hitler and some of his closest aides, including his girlfriend Eva Braun, were killed, or were <laughs> killed themselves, I guess, in the Führerbunker, an underground shelter beneath the city. On April 29, 1945, a day before Hitler and Eva Braun committed suicide, Hitler ordered his personal physician, Dr. Ludwig Stumpfeger, to euthanize Blondie. The exact method is disputed, with some accounts suggesting that Blondie was given a cyanide capsule similar to one used by Hitler and Braun, while others claim he was shot. Some people like to assume that the uh, cyanide pill was a test to make sure that Hitler and Eva Braun's uh, pills were going to be effective in killing them. Following Blondie's death, Hitler and Eva Braun took their own lives. 
Blondie's story serves as a reminder of Hitler's personal life and the complex relationship he had with animals. If you don't know this, uh, Hitler was actually a vegetarian. He did not like violence towards animals, which is, again, such a weird juxtaposition with what he did to human beings in his lifetime. And we know he didn't view Jewish people or gypsies or gays or blacks as people. He viewed them as less than people. But presumably he viewed, he still viewed them at least on par with animals. So it is interesting that he treated them so poorly um, when treating animals, and especially Blondie, with such respect and reverence. Now, while he displayed affection and care towards Blondie, it's important to recognize that Hitler's treatment of animals should not overshadow the immense human suffering and atrocities he committed during his life. That is uh, something that's going to be similar for our next person. We are talking about another person who maybe you wouldn't call him a serial killer, but he I would definitely say he's a mass murderer. We're talking about Jim Jones, uh, the cult leader of Jonestown, probably the most famous co- uh, cult leader in history, unless you count like L. Ron Hobbit and Scientology as a cult, which I do. Okay. The story of Jim Jones and Jonestown is a complex and tragic tale that provides valuable insights into the dynamics of cults and the dangers of unchecked charismatic leaders. Very similar to Hitler just before. Jim Jones was born in 1931 in Indiana. Initially, he started his religious career as a Methodist minister. However, he soon established his own religious group, the People's Temple, which combined elements of Christianity, socialism, and racial equality. The People's Temple gained popularity for its messages of social justice and its commitment to helping the disadvantaged. Jones used his charisma and persuasive abilities to attract followers, drawing a diverse group of people, including those seeking a sense of purpose, marginalized individuals, and idealistic young activists. The cult gradually evolved into a highly controlling and isolated community under Jones's iron grip. He demanded absolute loyalty and enforced strict rules using fear and manipulation to maintain his authority. Before the cult really got its feet off the ground, um, Jim Jones needed to make money while he was trying to run this stuff. He actually, this is such a funny piece of trivia, Jim Jones actually made a living. He sold spider monkeys to people. He would import them from India, uh, and he would he would uh, import them from India for, and he would sell them for about sixty bucks, which in today's money is about two hundred bucks. Which you know, two hundred bucks is not nothing, but it's pretty cheap for a you know a fucking spider monkey, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, he, I, I I tried really hard to find. There's a tape. There's a there's a website called the Jonestown Institute. You can look this up yourself. It's a fantastic resource about Jonestown and has all the transcribed tapes from Jonestown and a lot of other stuff throughout his life. There is one in there. I know it's in there because I've I've heard it before. Uh, I couldn't find it, but there's a there's a woman talking about how yeah Jones tried to sell her her monkey. She had already had a monkey and the. <laughs> The, the monkey hung itself. I don't know how. She says it's so nonchalant. She's like, well, I needed another monkey because my first monkey, well, he hanged himself. Who? What's happening in your house? What is the? How low is the quality of life? How is the standard of living in your house so low that spider monkeys are fucking committing suicide in your house? Don't sell her any more monkeys, Jim. Um, that was Jim's first sort of like, you know, interaction with, with uh, animals. Well, I shouldn't say it's his first. He did kill a puppy when he was younger. Uh, he, he sort of, he was a great organizer. He was a community organizer when he was really young. I think he was only 15 or 14. He created like a basketball tournament. He was not a good sportsman, but he liked organization. So he organized like a basketball league from all the towns around his place. And it was a success. It ran really smoothly. People loved playing. But then at one of the meetings, he just, he led a puppy 
into a trapdoor and it fell to its death and died. And after that, it, the whole thing fell apart. Um, people didn't want to hang out with him anymore, strangely enough. Yeah, so he's had some interesting interactions with animals, but he has one animal in particular, which is quite interesting, which we'll come to in a little bit later. But firstly, let's talk about uh, their trip to Guyana. So in 1977, under mounting scrutiny and investigations into allegations of abuse, Jones relocated the People's Temple to Guyana in South America. There, he established a settlement called Jonestown which was intended to become a self-sufficient utopian community. However, Jonestown soon became a place of isolation, deprivation, and psychological and physical abuse. Reports of the conditions and treatment within Jonestown eventually reached the United States, leading to growing concerns about the welfare of its residents. In November 1978, U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan and a delegation, along with journalists and concerned family members of Jonestown members, traveled to Guyana to investigate the situation. During the visit, some Jonestown members expressed a desire to leave, seizing the opportunity presented by Congressman Ryan's visit. However, as they attempted to depart, they were ambushed and attacked by armed followers of Jim Jones. Congressman Ryan, several journalists, and a defector from the cult were killed in the attack. Fearing the consequences of the assault on the visiting delegation, Jim Jones made the fateful decision to orchestrate a mass murder-suicide. On November 18, 1978, he ordered his followers to drink a concoction of cyanide-laced Flavor-Aid, okay, Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid. Over 900 people, including children and infants, lost their lives in the tragic event. The Jonestown massacre shocked the world and prompted widespread scrutiny of cults and the dangers they posed. It highlighted the vulnerabilities of individuals susceptible to manipulation and illustrated the immense power that a charismatic leader can wield. The tragedy sparked discussions about the need for stricter oversight of communal and religious organizations and led to reforms in the United States. The legacy of Jonestown serves as a haunting reminder of the devastating consequences that can arise when charismatic leaders exploit the trust and loyalty of their followers. It has, a profoundly it has profoundly influenced the study of cults, psychology, and the understanding of group dynamics, emphasizing the importance of critical thinking, awareness, and safeguards against abusive practices. Now, one of the uh, individuals who died at Jonestown was a chimpanzee named Mr. Muggs, and he was one of Jones's earliest, uh, well, I can't say followers because it was a chimpanzee, uh, one of Jones's earliest, let's call them family members. Mr. Muggs was a chimpanzee who was picked up from a pet store by Jim Jones and his family on the way back from Los Angeles on a trip in 1971 or 1972 when Stephen Jones was 11 or 12 years old. Stephen is uh, Jim Jones' child. Despite rumors to the contrary, Mr. Muggs was not rescued from an animal testing lab or from a vivisectionist. He was named after J. Fred Muggs, a chimpanzee who, as his namesake did with the temple, acted as a mascot on the NBC's Today Show from 1953 to 1957. Mr. Muggs had a diaper on him when Jim brought him to the, to the car, but it, di but it didn't stay on very long. He fouled the interior on numerous occasions on the way back to Redwood Valley, and as Stevens described it, laid waste to a number of rest areas en route. The chimp lived in Redwood Valley for a couple of years. He started off living behind a, uh, sorry, a parsonage in a cage that had a small building connected to it where he would go to stay warm. The cage served as a second purpose as well. It was used for security with stairs to the top and a small building for 24-hour personal uh, security uh, details. 
a shortwave radio antenna was also located on a pole attached to the cage. Jim was, as you can imagine, not very humane with his new acquisition, often disciplining him quite physically, according to Stephen. Eventually, longtime Temple member Joyce Touchette adopted Mr. Muggs, and the chimpanzee became a fixture of the Touchette household. He rode on the Temple bus periodically, always in the care of Joyce. Now, Mr. Muggs could be a real handful. He seemed to take special delight in intimidating the Touchette family dog, but he also viewed Joyce, Joyce as a mother and respected, if not feared her, because of her maternal discipline. Even in Jonestown, no one could handle him except Joyce. Muggs went to Guyana on, on one of the first charter trips uh, Temple members made in December of 1974. His cage was also one of the first structures erected in Jonestown and was ready for him when he arrived. I find that really sad. Like, this chimpanzee, all of its life has been kept in cages and it just longs to go into the jungle and it gets finally taken to the jungles of South America and then just gets put in a cage again. <laughs> he should have just gone out and hung out with the monkeys and stuff. Um... Mr. Muggs developed into a solid chimpanzee weighing upward of 130 pounds. When he became excited or angry or anxious, he would flare out his hair and become larger than life. He was a social being and loved to play games like keep away or tug of war. Practically anyone could get him to play and to get him worked up during the play, but Mr. Muggs usually won the battle, in part because he was not afraid to use his teeth to nip his opponents. Mr. Muggs could also use his feet as hands and was adept at pulling blankets through bars in his cage. He would also reach through the bars and dangle a blanket as an invitation for a game of tug of war. Oftentimes young boys in Jonestown would play with him, but even with three or four boys at the other end of the blanket, Mr. Muggs would still win, especially when he used his legs to brace himself in the inside of his cage and suddenly rear back. When Stephen or one of his friends saw Mr. Muggs get into that position, they would run towards the cage to save the boys from being jerked off their feet. Now, very sadly, along with several dogs, Mr. Muggs was one of the animals that were shot in Jonestown on November 18th, although who fired the shots is not known. Apparently, according to some of the tapes, one of the very first jobs on the day of the mass murder was to go and kill Mr. Muggs. According to Guyana Assistant Police Commissioner Skip Roberts, Mr. Muggs was shot three times, but he was still alive when the Guyana Defense Force arrived in Jonestown 36 hours later. He died soon afterwards. And that's it, guys. That is four... Well, I guess it's more than four criminals. Uh, we, had, we had Dennis Nielsen, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, Adolf Hitler, and, of course, Jim Jones of Jonestown. Uh, we'll call that four groups of terrible people who did terrible things to other people and to animals, but they did have pets who I guess they loved, except for Jones, who seemed to not really care about this chimpanzee. We're going to take a break now, and we will come back with the rest of our episode. Uh, have a good one. And we are back. I hope you found those stories about those serial killers uh, and their pets interesting. Um, I love true crime. Uh, and if I was to give you any unsolicited advice, it would be to go follow and listen to your last podcast on the left. Uh, the best true crime podcast, in my opinion. Also, My Favorite Murder is really good. Um, but last podcast really tickles my gherkin. Um, and yeah, love it. And if you like this show, I'm sure you'll like that show because a lot of the show is based off that. Uh, you know, I, thank you for you know indulging me to take a little break from you know purely animal related stuff i really like delving into the human elements of true crime which is what most people do uh which is why i won't do it very often because the whole point of this is to keep this show unique uh, and focus it on you know on animal human conflict uh but you know i have been thinking you know another episode uh idea could be talking about 
cannibals uh, as humans. They're man-eaters, technically. Technically, a human who eats a dude is a man-eater. Absolutely. Even if it's a woman, they're still a man-eater. Funny how language works like that. Uh, guys, let us jump into our next segment, of course, which is the Scratch of the Day. Scratch of the Day, of course, the segment of the show where we look at the news, all the animal tax news for the past week, and we talk about them. As always, I don't read these ahead of time. I search for them, and we read them live. We have a few interesting articles, starting with one. A pregnant elephant has trampled its owner to death. The article reads, A pregnant elephant trampled its owner to death after it seemingly became agitated in severe heat. A 60-year-old man was trampled to death in Thailand while taking his elephant down to a stream, the Tiger reports. A witness to the incident, a 56-year-old, told the publication the elephant used its trunk to pick up the man and throw him down. She then trampled the man, news outlets report. Police officers found the man lying dead in the stream with broken legs and arms. The rest of his body was severely bruised. The female elephant is five months pregnant. Elephants are usually gentle creatures, but can become extremely dangerous when provoked or threatened. While it is not certain what caused the man to, uh, to what caused the elephant to turn on the man, officials and the man's wife believe she was agitated because of extreme temperatures. Thailand is currently experiencing a heat wave with temperatures exceeding 104 degrees Fahrenheit in some places. Climate scientists have described it as the worst heat wave ever seen in April in Asia, and some people have been warned not to go outside because of extreme conditions. After the elephant attack, the elephant left the scene, but officials initiated a search for her. They were able to finally find her and tranquilize the elephant without harming the baby. This proved difficult because of her agitated state. In Thailand, elephants can be both wild and domestic animals. It's not uncommon for people to own elephants in this country. Around 60% of Thailand's elephants are captive, with about 60% of those captive elephants being used for tourism purposes. Other elephants may be kept for festival processions or heavy manual labor. Duncan McNear, the CEO of the non-profit Save the Asian Elephants, told Newsweek, This tragic incident is a, the latest in numerous cases of abused or stressed Asian elephants attacking humans, often fatally. Researched by, research by Save the Asian Elephants shows that nearly 1,000 people catastroph catastrophically are injured and brutalized by tourism elephants, and another 800 killed, many in Thailand. The travel industry neglects to explain to its paying customers that elephants are not wild animals and highly are highly unpredictable and dangerous when stressed or threatened. They cannot be trained by the vicious beatings and stabbings they routinely receive to do all manner of unnatural activities like riding, tricks, games, and selfies. The cruelest simple sub <coughs> sorry, the cruelty simply subdues them until they react, often violently. Save the Asian Elephants is based in the UK, working to ban advertising and sales of overseas venues where animals are abused for tourism. According to the man's wife, uh, the elephant was purchased in March for 1.5 million baht, which is about 44,000 uh, US dollars. It is not the first time extreme heat has been blamed for an elephant's violent behavior. In Wow. In August, an elephant ripped its owner in half after it worked in extreme heat carrying wood. The 20-year-old elephant had stabbed its owner with its tusks. Some Asian elephants are used to carry logs and wood. These animals are known as logging elephants. The practice was banned in Thailand in 1982, but it still happens in some areas of the country. 
four months ago in Thailand, a man witnessed the extreme and heartbreaking abuse of mother and baby elephants covered in blood and crying as they were forced by... Wow, they were forced by stabbing to perform tricks at a village, one of thousands of unethical venues exploiting elephants. I think we should take a little uh, uh, side story here and listen. Let's see if we can find the story about the elephant that ripped an owner in half. That is insane. Okay, this is from uh, 2022. Elephant rips owner in half after making him work in heat. An elephant ripped its owner in half after the animal was forced to carry wood in Thailand for a period of extreme heat. Police arrived at a rubber plantation uh, in a in the Phang Nang pro- province on Wednesday to find the body of 32-year-old man in a pool of blood. The 20-year-old elephant named Pom Pang, Pom Pam, sorry, had stabbed its owner with its tusks. The elephant had been carrying rubber wood in extremely hot temperatures when it attacked. Asian elephants are used to carry logs, yet we just read that. Let's see if there's any more information. Uh, The elephant was still standing over uh, the man's body when authorities arrived at the scene. Uh, Officers sedated the elephant so they can investigate the body. Um, The owner had been identified as the son of the former uh, Cocheron subdistrict mayor. His body was given to relatives for a funeral. Wow. Uh, Any other information here about this? No, it's a lot of the same sort of facts we just we just learned about that. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so yeah, uh, an elephant has a pregnant elephant has trampled its owner to death. Uh, only a year after an elephant ripped another man in half, both in Thailand, both during extreme heat waves. Uh, my parents uh, have a photo that they cherish, I think, from their honeymoon of them in Thailand uh, riding an elephant on the like on its back on one of those little carriages, and it's a, obviously a memory they treasure. But they, even they have like recognized as the years have gone past that that is just a cruel thing to do elephants are not horses they are not animals that are designed to have weights on their backs um they are not animals that are designed for well manual labor no animal is designed for manual labor not even people man why do we do this to ourselves guys we're people we should just be out in the mud jerking off and fucking and eating fruit that's what we were made for god would be so surprised if he came back to earth and saw us have jobs why do we have jobs anyway anyway um yeah, poor story. It's nice that they were able to seduce, uh, seduce, sed, uh, sedate the animals rather than kill them. Every time I read these stories where a person is killed by an animal, um, I'm forced to just expect, and then the police shot it in the fucking head or something like that, which, like, I get it. I get that you can't let these animals just wander away, but it's nice that they were able to sedate these animals and, and I don't know, move them somewhere else. Because I think that the people in Thailand can understand, oh, this elephant killed a dude why oh because it was like five months pregnant and the dude was making it work in extreme heat waves so yeah anyway there there you go there's a story an elephant story we love it two weeks in a row elephant stories you're very lucky people okay our next story oregon man shoots a bear twice for attacking his chickens but the same bear returns to attack him that's a weird headline it's very long An Oregon man who shot a bear that had been harassing his chickens was attacked by the very same animal the following day. Craig Lankford shot the bear on Tuesday evening after noticing the giant creature was disturbing the chickens he keeps at his home in La Grande, a city of about 13,000 in eastern Oregon. When Lankford went uh, went out the following morning to try and search for the grizzly, he shot the creature a second time after encountering it near his property. And Owls- <clears throat> on Owsley Canyon Road, according to a news release from Union uh, County Sheriff's Office. Soon after the bear attacked Langford, 
the sheriff's office said. Uh, deputies were notified of the attack just after 7.30am on Wednesday and immediately closed nearby roads and the neighbouring Mount Emily recreation area, recreation area, hoping to contain the injured bear and further avoid attacks. According to officials with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, wounded bears can be especially dangerous. That's true. The, OD, sorry, the ODFW, bad acronym, very hard to say, is aware of at least three incidences where wounded bears attacked human beings uh, who had shot but not killed them. None of these attacks, thankfully, were fatal. While bear attacks are rare, they tend to occur most when bears are wounded, when they are being fed by people and lose their natural wariness, or when they are surprised by people or other animals. With help from the USDA Wildlife Service around 11am, the bear, a bear consistent with Langford's description was spotted near the site of the attack, and here we go, euthanized. A necroscopy was performed and bullet fragments consistent with Langford's report uh, confirmed the bear had been the one that was involved in the attack. Great, sad. Langford suffered injuries to his arms and head, but is expected to recover. He is currently being treated in an area hospital. Oregon has not documented any fatal bear attacks. There you go. That's a sad story for the bear. The guy thankfully lived. You know, he, he you know, he was defending his chickens. I get it. It's, you know, it is it is kind of what it is. I don't really when hunters get attacked by bears, right? Like I'm not a monster. I obviously am like, oh, that's very sad for, for them and for their family. But I do kind of have to view it as a little bit of like, well, fair's fair, right? You were attacking the bear. It attacked you. Let's just call it a tie. I, I wish they didn't have to euthanize the animals afterwards, but they do. Okay. Uh, our final story, not really a news story. It's just an article that I found, which is really interesting. It's from the BBC um, and it's top 10, the world's most dangerous animals. Uh, it was published on the 23rd of May. So the BBC has kind of ranked which animals killed most people per year. And I thought that'd be a really interesting um, thing. So what animal kills the most humans per year? Spoilers, guys, it's not sharks. If you were a listener of the show for a long time, you would already probably have a good guess as to what animals are going to be in the top three. I'm going to give you a moment, have a think. What are your top three? What's number three? Number two, number one. For me, without reading the article, I'm going to say number th number one is going to be mosquitoes because they always kill. But number two, it, it will depend if they include humans. I'm going to say I'm going to assume they're not. Okay, number one is mosquitoes. Number two will be dogs, and number three will be maybe like oh, like spiders or bees or something like that. Yeah, let's see. Okay. Here's a morbid question for you. Which animal kills the most humans every year? Although Hollywood films suggest our greatest threats include sharks and rampaging apes, the deadliest creatures are often much smaller and more likely to kill through disease rather than sharp teeth. But which is Earth's number one killer? Here is the top 10 list below. At number 10, lions. Apparently, lions kill 200 people per year. Now, while you might have guessed the king of the jungle, that doesn't really live in the jungle, would be higher up on this list of the world's most dangerous animals, the lion is still a ferocious predator that you wouldn't want to mess with. Typically attacking in the night using its sharp claws to inflict deep wounds, and with a bite that can crack bones and your skull, the lion is a fearsome beast. These big cats stalk their prey in groups, in small groups, surrounding the unlucky individual before lunging in for the kill. Get too close to a pride and they could charge you, especially during courtship or when there are cubs present. These majestic big cats attack out of hunger to protect their young. I mean, I'll be interested to see if tigers are on this list. If lions are up here, my guess would be that tigers would be too. Uh, let's see, number nine, hippos. Hippos kill about 500 people per year. 
The hippopotamus could be seen as a surprise entry on this list. I hope not to any of our viewers here, by the way. You guys should know better. Uh, due to it being herbivore, but thanks to its impressive set of chompers and its aggressive nature, it is one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. At number eight, we've talked about them in this episode. Elephants, who kill up to 600 humans per year. An elephant who never forgets to kill. <laughs> nice. The mighty elephant is one of the world's most dangerous animals thanks to its sheer size, and it can attack humans in various ways. Elephants typically kill humans by trampling, as the African elephant can weigh up to eight tons, Asians can weigh up to five and a half tons, the force of being knocked back and stomped on by one of these would easily be enough to kill. An elephant can also use its trunk to pick up and throw humans and smash them into the ground. It has been known to for hu for elephants to gore people with their tusks. And number seven, this one's not a surprise to me. Uh, crocodiles killing up to 1,000 people per year. The crocodile is famously ferocious animal that kills up to 1,000 people per year. Just one look at those teeth should tell you why these reptiles are so dangerous. The Nile crocodile has a bite force of up to 5,000 psi. Saltwater crocodiles chomp down on their prey and can perform a death roll to help add even more pain to the experience. Lovely. The Nile crocodile, on the other hand, uses their ridiculously powerful bite to simply crush their prey, often before swallowing it whole. Crocodiles are aggressive and tremendously territorial and will attack anything that enters their habitat, often ambushing in the water. Yeah, we know all about that. Crocodiles are a big danger in northern Australia, Papua New Guinea, Southeast Asia, and Africa as well. Um, oh, interesting. Number six. This is not an animal I would have expected. The scorpion. Scorpions kill 3,300 per people per year. These ancient and aggressive creepy crawlies sting with their tail and inject venom into their prey. With over 26,000 species of the arachnid, only around 25 carry a powerful enough toxin to kill humans. The venom carried by a death stalker is enough to kill the young, elderly, and those with lingering medical problems including heart conditions. Healthy adult humans can be killed by a death stalker's sting too. It's just less likely. Interesting. Um, these animals are found all over the world, including the deserts of North Africa and the Middle East. They are not to be fucked with. <laughs> Scorpions, surprisingly, not on the uh, are on the list. I wouldn't have expected. Assassin bugs are also on the list. Another one I did not. I've never talked about an assassin bug. Ah, interesting. This is because it's a disease spreader. Uh, this can kill up to 10,000 people per year. Assassin bugs are a primary spreader of the deadly Chagas disease. These blood-sucking uh, predator instincts are a real threat in Central and South America thanks to this. The Chagas disease is a pa potentially fatal and is transmitted through an assassin bug bite or by consumption of cold food or drink that has been infected by the insect and or its feces, which carry the uh, protozoan Trypanzoma cruzi, a terrible disease that attacks the heart, digestive system, and nervous system, according to the Pan American Health Organization. Worse still, the disease can be transmitted from mother to baby through the placenta during pregnancy. That is fucking sad. Okay, we're in our top four, and I was wrong. I thought that dogs would be in the top three. Dog is number four, with rabies being the primary cause of death. Um, these kill up to 59,000 people per year, which if you are a listener of the show, you would not be surprised by. Man's best friend can be man's worst enemy when it comes to rabies. Any postman can tell you about dog attacks or close calls as well. Dogs like to guard their owners against possible intruders and will attack by biting. While death from dogs is uncommon, human deaths from rabies transmitted by dog bites are not unheard of, primarily taking place in poorer parts of the world, including Africa and Asia. 
The World Health Organization says dogs are the main source of human rabies deaths, contributing to up to 99% of all rabies transmissions to humans. It is transmitted by saliva via bites, scratches, and direct contact with infected areas on the dog. Interesting. Okay, we're in our top three. I'll go really quickly through these. Number three, this one you could have guessed, snakes. Snakes, of course, can kill up to 138,000 people per year. Uh, the most common human deaths from snakes occur from venomous bites, however, with uh, with the lucky left being dealing with amputations and other permanent disabilities. Okay, so number two is humans. I So if, if the humans weren't on there, I would have been correct with dogs in the top three. Uh, humans kill 400,000 humans per year. Um so the, the article admits it's a bit of a cheat, but humans are technically set the second most dangerous animals on the planet when it comes to human deaths. That is when you just count homicides, by the way. Um, globally, 0.7% of deaths in 2019 were the result of homicide. In Latin America, homicide rates are higher than any other part of the world, with homicides accounting for more than 7% of deaths in El Salvador. Jesus, it's a lot. Humans aren't alone in killing their own. In the animal kingdom, it happens all the time. When we get true, <laughs> when we get true crime podcasts, what? When we get true crime podcasts about lions or chimpanzees is another thing entirely. Um, excuse me, sciencefocus.com. The, I, what do you think I am? Chop liver? Fucking. Okay, guys, here's our first ever call out. You go to sciencefocus.com, and if there's a comment section here, there's not. You email these people and tell them, excuse me, uh, excuse me who wrote this article, excuse me, Thomas Ling and Toby Saunders, uh, can you please check your sources, because we do have true crime podcasts about lions and chimpanzees, thank you very much, there's at least one, and it's it's adequately good, 4.3% on Spotify, okay, not the percent, 4.3 stars. You know what I'm saying. Okay, number one, as I'm sure you would have guessed, mosquitoes, they kill 725,000 people per year by spreading diseases such as malaria. The most deadly animal to humans is the mosquito. This tiny little flying insect has been the cause of much death worldwide thanks to its spreading of malaria and has steered the course of human history on multiple occasions. According to the World Health Organization, malaria mostly spreads to people through bites of some infected females of Enfiles, mosquitoes, whatever, Malaria infections is particularly bad in Africa, where the region accounts for 95% of cases and 96% of deaths worldwide. It's best to avoid mosquitoes as much as possible by purchasing and installing a mosquito net if you're planning on traveling into areas where insects are an issue. There you go. Interesting. So just to recap, let's go backwards. At number one, mosquitoes. Number two, humans. Number three, snakes. Number four, doggos. Number five, assassin bugs. Number six, scorpions. Number seven, crocodiles. Number eight, elephants. Number nine, the hippo. And number 10, the lion. Interesting. Tiger's not up there. Bear's not up there. Wolves not up there. Uh, yeah, wow. Interesting list. There you go. Thank you very much, sciencefocus.com, BBC's sciencefocus.com, except for you not acknowledging me. Uh, everyone go and uh, annoy them. I don't know. We'll figure out what we do. I know on Twinovation, like, they would oink them out, they'd do the pig snouts thing, and I know that, like, Beyonce's things post a bunch of bees in comment sections just to be annoying. You can post a bunch of tiger faces for me, all right? Let's let's roar them out. Tiger, tiger face, go. Okay, uh, we are up to our final, uh, final segment of the day. Uh, we're going to do some beastly biographies for you now. Let's do it. So a little bit of a shake up to the beastly biographies. I have had a recommendation or a request 
from a listener. Stephanie has asked to look into the Anaconda. Uh, going forward, if you'd like to uh, suggest the Beastly Bio of the Week, you can do so on our Instagram by sending me a private message. So the Anaconda, also known as the Green Anaconda, Common Anaconda, Water Anaconda, Giant Anaconda, Common Water Anaconda, the Boa or the Sukuri, and then there's a bunch of other ones in different languages as well. So its population size is unknown. We have no idea how many there are. They can live from between 10 to 30 years. They have a top land speed of 16 kilometers per hour. They weigh between 30 to 70 kilograms and they can uh, have a length from up to three meters to all the way up to 4.6 meters. The green anaconda is a boa species found in South America. It is the heaviest and one of the longest known extant groups, uh, snake species. Like all boas, it is a non-venomous constrictor. The color pattern of the snake consists of an olive green background overlaid with black splotches along the length of its body. The head is narrow compared to the body, usually with distinctive orange-yellow striping on either side. The eyes are set high up on the head, allowing the snake to see out of the water while swimming without exposing its body. The anaconda's jawbones splay open at the front because they are loosely connected. This also allows it to swallow large prey larger than the size of its head. The windpipe in its mouth allows it to breathe while swallowing its prey. Its largest organ is the liver. The digestion process takes many days to complete, and during this time, the the anaconda behaves very sluggishly, just like me after I finish eating my KFC. Uh... So this, this animal, uh, it lives obviously in South America, but it can also go to North America, apparently. Uh, the country that it does live in is Brazil, um, and it lives in tropical moist fo- uh, forests and tropical savannas. Um, so it's lifestyle and habitat. They're nocturnal creatures, and they lead a solitary lifestyle. Being water-dwelling reptiles, anacondas are fast in the water while slow on land. Uh, so actually, maybe that 16 kilometers per hour is probably in the water, not on land. Most of their lives are spent in the water, staying underwater for long periods of time. Anacondas are comparatively passive in daytime heat and start moving at dusk when the heat subsides. They often pass long distances very quickly, usually when the dry season reaches its high point or when they look for mates. Uh, their eating habits. Anacondas are opportunistic apex predators, which means they usually don't have any general plan and take advantage of any chance they have to take a meal. They usually feed on other reptiles, sheep, dogs, tapirs, fish, birds, wild pigs, deer, and rodents, as well as any kind of available prey that are able to catch and swallow. So, they're Here's some interesting facts for you, okay? I, I can't see anything information here about them eating people, but I'm sure they have. I'm sure it's happened. Here's some fun facts. The word anaconda has Tamil origins, coming from the Tamil word uh, anacholera, meaning elephant killer. After the Spanish conquest of the area, settlers called anacondas matatoros, which meant bull killers. After a long period in the water, anacondas are frequently seen hanging from trees to dry up. Anacondas don't have scales on their cloacas. Their gland in this area smells like musk, which which frightens tiny organisms poisonous to them. So this smell most likely protects anacondas' cloacas from leeches and ticks. Who is the guy who sniffed a cloaca to figure out what it smelled like? Jesus Christ. In Latin, the scientific name of anaconda sounds like uh, <laughs> Enuchis uranus, which means good, uh, good swimmer. Anacondas can do without air underwater. Uh, for about 10 minutes and then rise up to the surface to get some air. An anaconda can be satisfied with only one meal over a long period of time, provided that the prey is large enough. 
And there you go. That's a little beastly biography for the anaconda there. Thank you to Stephanie for requesting that. And of course, if you have an animal that you'd like to learn a little bit of about, but you're too lazy to Google and you want me to do it for you, um, you can do that heading to uh, our Instagram or send me an email. However you want to get in touch, please do. Thank you to everyone who's been doing that. Guys, that's the end of our episode, by the way. Thank you so much for listening. I know it was a bit of a departure from the regular animal content, but it was nice to talk about something a little bit different. Uh, But we will be back next week with an entirely animal focused episode don't you worry and then the week after that we're going back to cryptid town we have a man uh, we have a man eaters killer cryptid episode in the pipeline i'm not going to tell you what it is in case i change my mind but i am very excited and i think oh baby i think you're gonna like it uh thank you so much for listening everybody what do we have to say uh let's thank you everyone who's been on the patreon patreon.com slash Maneaters, of course. If you want to get in touch with me, you can go to maneaterspod at gmail.com or you can send me a message on Facebook, facebook.com slash maneaterspod or on Instagram at maneaterspodcast or, of course, personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Jimothy Chaps. You can do all that bullshit. Thank you for listening to the Serial Killers. Thank you for listening to the Scratch of the Day. Thank you for everything you do for me and I hope you have a fantastic week. I'll see you next time and as always, stay safe because as we've learned, it's a jungle out there.